Dr. Lisa Schrank is a professor of architectural history at the University of Arizona's College of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape Architecture. She is the author of multiple books, including the Oak Park Studio of Frank Lloyd Wright, and she is the co-founder of the Global Institute for the Study of International Expositions. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Lisa Schrank. Lisa, I can't help but notice that beautiful building behind you, and you were starting to say a little bit about it offline. Um, what is that building for those of people who maybe don't recognize it right away? Uh, this is Frank Lloyd Wright's Oak Park Studio. This is, he built his house here in 1889. It's in the western suburb of Chicago. And then uh, in 1897, he started constructing his studio here. And it opened probably in about February of 1898. And he worked here. He developed his early kind of architectural ideas in this building uh, until about 1909. Okay. And obviously you're interested in Frank Lloyd, Frank Lloyd Wright. How much of your current work focuses on him or have you veered away? I keep on getting pulled back into him. <laughs> There's this whole Frank Lloyd Wright world. And uh, I actually specifically did my dissertation on a non-Frank Lloyd Wright topic in part because I didn't want to be kind of pigeonholed as a Frank Lloyd Wright scholar. Mm. But uh, he's such a draw. And I worked in this building for four years many, many years ago and started researching it and pulling my book that I wrote on the Oak Park Studio. It took about 30 years of research and writing to get it to uh, where it could be published. Uh, there was so much information we didn't know, and it was many, many hours in archives and kind of weaving bits and pieces uh, together. But uh, I've been involved with the Frank Lloyd Wright Building Conservancy, uh, editing uh, issue of their publication that's coming up. I just gave a, a volunteer lecture in the training of volunteers for a Frank Lloyd Wright house in Springfield, Ohio. So I seem to keep on getting pulled into the Frank Lloyd Wright world. I teach courses on Frank Lloyd Wright as well. When you worked there, what exactly were you doing? I was the director of education and we had a big NEH grant that paid for part of my salary when I was hired. And so half of my time was overseeing and developing educational programs. By the time I left four years later, we had programs for kindergartners all the way to high school students, uh, college students. We had an internship program. We had adult lectures and excursions to Frank Lloyd Wright buildings. Uh, we had a scholars board. And so it was kind of a whole uh, smorgasbord of, of educational activities. And then about half my time was uh, geared to research topics relating to write, relating to the home and studio, and then to make that information accessible to other scholars, to the public. And that was the germ of, of my research that ended up being in the book. Were you able to start writing on the book while you were actually still there? I wrote a, a number of articles and some short monograph pieces, and then shortly after I left, I did a draft of a manuscript while I was a PhD student, but there was still so much more that needed to be explored and incorporated into the text, and as well as a need for kind of a maturity as an academic to be able mm -hmm. to 
really take a very complex topic and put it into a, a larger context of what was going on at the time and place uh, that the Oak Park studio was operating. Interesting. And concerning the time that you were actually in Oak Park, in the studio, working as the director of education, kindergarten to graduate students, that's, that's obviously like this huge spectrum. And, and I'm sure there were many smaller missions along the way. Was there an overarching mission as far as increasing exposure? Or I'm just interested in if there's a connection between what your goal was with the kindergartners and, and the graduate students. I think... <clears throat> The, all of the educational programs I was involved in, there's a was a uh, underlying agenda to use Frank Lloyd Wright to use architecture to, and ex aspects of experiential learning to have a better understanding of of the world, not just mm -hmm. kind of right. And if you think about architecture, I always think of it as one of the most interdisciplinary fields where it touches on so much. So one of the core programs was called Serendipity Saturdays. And that was for fourth through sixth graders. Mm. And programs range from having a school, what was school like? And there was a Freiburg kindergarten, a school that was run in the playroom in the home for a number mm. of years, uh, to looking at right nature. And in front of the, the studio was, a, it's still there today, a huge ginkgo tree. And the students learned about right in nature. And then we walked a couple blocks away where the um, the pair, I think it was the male of the trees, um, and we taught the students how to do triangulation. And then each of the students got to take a seedling from the tree home. Wow. So you could talk about nature. You could talk about you know mathematical principles. We did a lot of work with Freibel blocks, which were part of the Freibel gift system that Wright's mother had gone to the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia in 1876. The family briefly, briefly worked in or uh, lived in Massachusetts. And there were orphans in the women's pavilion that were demonstrating the use of these gifts. Uh, Frederick Freibel probably touched many of the listeners' lives. He was the inventor of kindergarten. He was a German educator in the 1830s. And he, developed these series of gifts that there were 10 gifts and then 10 occupations. And think about kindergarten. It's it's a garden for children. There's just that that tie of nature. But also with the gifts, there's interactive play where you're working with these objects in different ways. So gift one, I think of cat toys. They're little orange or little uh, yarn balls that look like cat toys, uh, the colors of the rainbow. So you might give a year and a half year old these to interact with. And then gift two are maple geometrical forms. Mm -hmm. So there's a cylinder and a cube and a, uh, a sphere. And you can compare the soft yarn with the hard uh, wood and mm -hmm. you can uh, hang these objects and twist them. And then you've got gifts four through six, which were building blocks. And those were most influential, I think, to write. And he talked about in his 90s, he could still feel the maple blocks in his fingers. And he attributed the, the strong geometrical forms in his architecture to working with these gifts. He was nine years old when his mother brought a set back. And Milton Bradley at the time was, was were producing the the gifts. And so he was a little bit old, but uh, when he was working in the Oak Park studio, 
is when uh, Forever Kindergarten was in operation in the playroom. And so these blocks were around as he was developing his early architecture. And you would use these blocks in very specific ways. You would create forms of life with them. And so maybe you'd make a chair or there's a, a design for a church for one of the more elaborate uh, five and six had a few more blocks in them. Or you would do forms of knowledge where you would teach a child mathematical principles with the blocks. Mm -hmm. And then there were the forms of beauty where you work on a grid and you put the blocks down kind of in a single layer in a symmetrical pattern. And then you'd move four blocks and you get a different design. You move four more blocks, you get another design. And if you look at Wright's architecture, his buildings look like building blocks in some mm -hmm. cases. He designs on a grid, he uses a module system. And even in his later Usonian houses, you could actually see the grid on the floor of the house. And then uh, you can see even in some of his designs, a rotational emphasis that's very similar with some of the patterns that you get using the blocks. So we can see how these gifts had really influenced his architecture. And we worked with, with kids and adults with these, and we had workshops that we'd have, have young kids and their grandparents come. And it was really an even playing field where yeah. the kids could manipulate the blocks, you know, almost better than the, the adults could. Wow. That's fascinating. And I'm almost imagining you watching a child, you know, maybe around nine years old playing with it, thinking, how interesting, you know, that that experience would have had such a visible effect on his own, on his art later in life. That's fascinating. Wow. Yeah, a similar influence was nature. Mm. So he grew up most of the time growing up, he was in South Central Wisconsin, rolling hills, really beautiful landscape, surrounded by the, his aunts and uncles, I think there were 11 kids in his mother's family. It was a Welsh family, very close. And he worked on his uncle's farms, but he spent a lot of time growing up just exploring the hills and the plants. And we can see that as well, clear, clearly in his work in a number of different ways. <clears throat> it, it, it must've been fascinating. Um... But I wonder if you could speak to just how interesting it was. Being an outsider, I'm sure you knew a lot more as you tiptoed into this and then became fully immersed into the subject. But it had to have been interesting watching this sort of larger than life character make so much sense and sort of see his influences and then sort of see, the, see them yield out. Was there any part of your work that was demystifying in, in any way that kind of took the magic away from it? Or was it still even more spectacular seeing how these small influences could, could yield these buildings and, and this life work, life's work, excuse me. I think part of my work was to try to get to the truth mm. and really understand, particularly in the early years of his career. So he was working in Oak Park from really, as soon as he built the house, he used the front room of the house to build um, to design what are referred to as his bootleg houses. He was working at the time at Adler and Sullivan, uh, the one of the most prominent firms in Chicago, but he did do some work kind of on the sly, and these are often referred to as his bootleg houses. Um, and then he was designing there 
uh, until 1909. And then he goes up to Wisconsin and continues his, his very long career. He was an architect for over 70 years. But I think this time we see the, the greatest development. And sometimes he's viewed as the great lone genius. And he put that, that out there. And when we really look at what was going on, he was really gifted in many ways of capitalizing on the conditions at the time and new ideas, but he also had other really gifted designers with him. Um, before he built the Oak Park Studio, he had an office also downtown, surrounded by other young progressive architects, and there were dialogues, there were lectures that were going on that they all attended and, and gave to each other. And then in Oak Park, uh, in the early years, uh, he had a number of people that were very well-trained, very gifted, in particular, Marion Mahoney, who was the second woman to graduate with a degree in architecture from MIT. So she had a pretty uh, strong background, as well as Walter Billy Griffin, who received his degree from the University of Illinois, uh, a very different education. MIT was very much kind of a, a Beaux-Arts classical education. At Illinois, uh, Griffin was very interested in landscaping, more kind of structural uh, almost engineering uh, background. And there were several other people in the early years and other people, Barry Byrne, who came in as a young teenager, kind of as the office boy and received his training in the studio. Griffin kind of took him under his wing, but uh, he recalls these dialogues and debates that took place, that it was a very uh, energetic and intellectual environment as Wright is developing, and as well as with some of the architects still in Chicago, what's known as the Prairie House. And this is the first, often we considered the first uniquely American form of residential architecture. So one of the things that, that Frank Lloyd Wright was trying to do as well as his Liebermeister, his beloved master, Louis Sullivan, who he had been working for, was to find a uniquely American modern form of architecture. And so they were rejecting uh, classical historical architecture, particularly neoclassical architecture that was looking back to Greece and Rome for inspiration, which was kind of all the rage at the end of the, the 19th, early 20th centuries. And the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, which Louis Sullivan designed the transportation building for kind of in a corner and his building was very colorful, it was ornate. The rest of the main fair buildings, except for one or two other exceptions were looked like you had entered Rome. Hmm. There were these white classical buildings with columns and lots of ornamentation. They were all built out of staff, which is essentially plaster of Paris, but it was often referred to as the white city. And people like, like Sullivan and Wright were rejecting that kind of architecture and trying to find, you know, don't go back to Europe. Let's try to find something that's more appropriate for particularly the Midwest. So the other thing that we see about Wright's early architecture, he emphasizes the horizontal lines and the flatness of the prairie. Well, he came from the rolling hills of Wisconsin. So moving down to the area of Chicago, where you do have a pretty flat landscape must have had a big impact on him. Mm. And when we look at the prairie houses, we see the horizontal lines are emphasized. If you think about like the Roby house, which is probably one of the most famous of his prairie houses. 
He's even using Roman brick, which is longer than the typical Chicago common brick that we, when we think of brick, that's typically what we think about. So the Roman brick was longer and uh, uh, shorter in height. And then he rakes out the horizontal mortar and then takes the vertical mortar and dyes it, you know, colors it the color, almost the color of the brick and brings it out. So it looks like you've got bands of horizontal bands of brick. And mm-hmm. then the windows are in these horizontal bands referred to as ribbon windows. Hmm. This, um, I forget exactly how you put it, but this sort of lone genius idea, does that immediately go out the window when you have a beloved master? I forget what the word you used, Liebermeister? Liebermeister. Yeah. Does that... That seems like, well, if you have a beloved master, then the whole lone genius thing has to immediately be dismissed. Did he distance himself from that master at some point while he was trying to push that? He did for a while. Mm. My understanding at some point, quite a while into the future, they had some type of falling out. But there's a wonderful story that Wright's youngest son jotted down for his kids. And there's a copy of it in the research center at the home and studio. And he remembers he became a lawyer. His father hated lawyers, but he, his father left the family when he was about six years old. So he never had that close of a relationship with his father as some of the older children did. And he was in Chicago, and I think his his father was taking him to some fancy shop down in, in the loop to buy a new suit. I think it was for graduation. And all of a sudden, there was essentially this bum on the side of the road. Now, Sullivan, in the end of his life, was he was an alcoholic, mm-hmm. kind of down on his luck. And all of a sudden, the two men start talking and Wright, in fact, takes Sullivan to buy a new overcoat for him. But they weren't talking about architecture. They were talking about music. And when Wright was a young architect, you know, late teens, about 20 years old, working at Adler and Sullivan, late in the night, the two men would talk and they would talk about you know, the use of geometry and nature, which Sullivan also, they're the roots of his architecture as well. And they also talked about uh, music and literature. And I think that's something that we find in, in great architects don't just study architecture in a silo, that they typically are very interested in all different aspects of culture and Wright in particular uh, talks about the impact of music and the structure of music uh, relating that to the structure of his architecture. Um, when he used to only really admitted to five core influences on his architecture, of course, there were many. Yeah. Louis Sullivan was one of them. Hmm. The other ones were, were, we talked about geometry coming out of the verbal uh, gifts, nature, as well as music particularly Beethoven, and then the Japanese print. And if we look at music, so his mother had been a school teacher when she got married. Education was very important in his mother's family. He had two aunts that ran a very progressive co-educational boarding school in the last couple decades of the uh, the 19th century. Very unheard of at the time. Hmm. And his father was a preacher. He was a musician. 
he was very much an intellect, but not the best financial provider for the family. And he eventually leaves the family. I think it's when Wright was a teenager, but he was a musician and Wright remembers hearing his father play Beethoven late into the night. So as he was falling asleep, he could hear Fur Elise and Moonlight Sonata and Wright's children talk about the same thing, going, falling asleep as Wright was playing the piano. And he typically would go off and play the piano at night when he was trying to work a difficult mm. architectural problem. And what's interesting, there's a great picture of him in his Oak Park studio shortly after it was built in his bathrobe playing piano. And there's a bust of Beethoven, just like Schroeder. You know, he had a bust of Beethoven up on his piano and that that bust of Beethoven is, is back in the house museum today. And then later on in his life, there's another picture of him. He, in the 19, late 1920s, he goes down to Arizona. He's got a number of projects he's working on. He builds a tent camp. This is like a plywood and canvas structures for him and a few designers to work on these projects. And there he is on, with a grand piano in his tent camp. Hmm. Um, and again, he talks about how, how important music was to uh, how he designed architecture. Those five core influences, you said he named them? As there, yeah, early on, they're brought up in one of the first articles on his work. Uh, the last one is very interesting. He talks about Japanese art, not Japanese architecture, although we know he was influenced by Japanese architecture. But uh, he really appreciated Japanese culture. He was exposed to that both in Sullivan's office and in the office of Joseph Lyman Silsby, who he came to work with when he first moved to Chicago. And then in 1905, he travels to Japan and he eventually becomes a Japanese print dealer. Mm -hmm. uh, when he, there's times in his career where he didn't have a lot of work in the office and he supported himself. He always lived a little bit above his, his means but he would sell Japanese prints off uh, when he needed money. And if you go to collections at the Art Institute in Chicago, the Met in New York, the Boston Fine Arts Museum, they all own many prints that pass through Frank Lloyd Wright's hands. Interesting. How, how much of those five core influences do you think were part of this image upkeep? Or am I telling myself a story here? I think... It's been a way to understand his architecture. Mm -hmm. And I think these are aspects that were really important to him. So I think they do become part of his, the way he presented himself mm -hmm. um, throughout his whole career. What's really interesting is his architecture changes over time. What we find though, is even though his architecture develops over time, he's really good about looking at how cultures change, how society has changed, what are the latest new building materials, structural techniques, and incorporating those into his work. But there's a thread, there are two threads throughout those 70 years, and they primarily are geometry and nature. And what's interesting is that his exploration of geometry in the 1890s, he's looking at the octagon, and beginning to kind of put these octagonal bays. He does that on his home in the dining. He redoes the dining room and adds a bay. 
And then he starts looking at squares in the module and, and designing on a grid. And in the 1930s, he updates the Prairie House to what is referred to as the Usonian House. This was a house for America, United States of America. And he ends up designing many of these houses and they are all designed on a grid. So you've got square houses, you've got houses that have rectangular grids. The uh, Hannah house in at Stanford was designed with a hexagon. And then by the time you get towards the end of his life, he's exploring circles. Uh, my favorite house of his, he designed for his son, David, who was in the concrete business. And it's a concrete house. It's a spiral house outside of, or it's in Phoenix. It's um, just a spectacular house. I had a chance to spend an uh, afternoon with David and his wife when David was 99. Mm. I think he died at 102. And I've been able to take students to that house when I teach my Frank Lloyd Wright class at the University of Arizona. And it's, so then if you think about circles and then spirals, and then we end with the Guggenheim, which is completed shortly after he dies with the really great spiral uh, space in New York City on Fifth Avenue. And so we these cores do kind of tie through, but through that time period, Wright's designing for the time and place. And so if we look at what he did in the prairie, and then in beginning in the teens around 1920, he's doing houses in, in Southern California, in LA, and he develops his textile block house, which he's actually using the, the sand from the site, this idea of organic architecture, time to nature. And unfortunately, apparently the sand was not the best construction material. And some of those houses have had uh, real structural problems. In fact, I think the, the grandest one, at least the greatest one I've been in is the Ennis Brown house on this ridge overlooking uh, Los Angeles. And what, last time I was there, it was in really bad shape. And mm. since that time, I think they spent something like $17 million restoring the house and restoring the block. Um, so restoring right buildings can be very expensive at times. Yeah, I imagine. You, we, I can't remember if we mentioned some of this online or some of this offline. I know definitely some of it offline, but I want to talk a little bit about your experience being able to actually live, or I'm sorry, work in that house in that studio. Um, and then maybe some of your other experiences being able to actually be in those places for longer. H how much does that experience add to your ability to, to really know a place versus if you just go visit a, visit a house, you know, I, I, I just imagine you have to, if you're thinking about how great a piece of architecture is, you have to think about sustainability. And most people would just be able to pass through the house. And like, what is it actually like to live and work in these places? Did you have an increase in appreciation for his work, actually being able to spend a significant amount of time actually, you know, working in a studio? Yeah, I think it's it's so important, particularly for an architect like like Frank Lloyd Wright, whose architecture is all about space, mm. to be able to inhabit the space, to go beyond just looking at you know, images in a dark classroom. And that's why I always try to take my students to go actually experience Wright's architecture. Uh, I was fortunate that before I 
took the job at the Franklin Wright Home and Studio. I did my master's degree at the University of Virginia. And my last year, I lived on the campus that Thomas Jefferson had designed in one of the rooms and with the working fireplace and the rotunda in the center. And then I also took a historical archaeology class where we went up to his home on a cello and dug. And so one day a week, I was spending time at his his home and then living on the campus he he designed and was really spoiled. And then to be able to go from there to working in Wright's home and studio, uh, I was incredibly spoiled. Mm. And it really hit home. And every day I would see something new or the light would be different or, you know, the different seasons and you would just discover little details. And even all the times I've gone back, particularly as I was doing research on the building, I was always noticing different things. And uh, particularly in looking at the building, he used it as an architectural laboratory. And unfortunately, if you go through the building today, on their typical 45 minute tour, you're kind of rushed through the building. You're looking at a building that was brought back when it was restored to 1909, that last year that he lived and worked at the site. Well, he owned the building till 1925. He made later changes in 1911. So in 1909, he runs off with a client's wife, goes to Europe um, and produces for a German publisher. He goes down to Italy. And his oldest son and another one of the architects who had worked with him in the studio uh, go to Italy. They rent a place outside of Florence and they rework all of the drawings for his Oak Park period projects. And then this huge portfolio, which today is often typically referred to as just the Vosmuth portfolio after the name of the publisher. And uh, there's also a, a book of photographs that goes with it. So Wright comes back 1911, he's leaving his family, you know, the six kids, the older kids are essentially out of the house, but he turns the studio into a living space for the family. He floors over the two-story drafting room, so, and he squares off the octagonal second floor to make four bedrooms for the kids. The drafting room becomes a living room. There's another space added that becomes Catherine's, his wife's bedroom. And then the studio or the the house becomes rental space. And the idea was so she would have some income to help support the family. And then Wright goes off back up to Wisconsin and builds his second home and studio, uh, Taliesin. And then Mm -hmm. later he builds a third one in in Arizona. so I think I got a little off track. And no, 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 it's quite all right. You you mentioned being spoiled. I I had the great fortune of being able to study abroad, and I remember coming back and you know thinking about taking five days and going on a vacation and sort of being spoiled and being like, I want to live in a place. You know, are there buildings that you ever wonder like, wow, I'd really love to live or work in that and and start you know be able to see what the the light at different times you know what it actually feels like through the seasons. Are there buildings that you think of in in that regard sometimes? I haven't, I'll have to think about that. Mm. Uh, I'm sure there are. I have favorite buildings that I've been able to experience at different times of day. My favorite building in the world is Angkor Wat in mm. Cambodia. And I had a chance to visit it in the 90s, just shortly after the last bit of Khmer Rouge activity was going on in the country. And there weren't a lot of tourists and having the site 
largely to ourselves and then going back when it's been incredibly tourist. It's, it's now a very popular place, uh, particularly for other Asians to go visit. And it's one of those places that's kind of getting overloved to death. It's made it onto people's bucket lists. And that's a building that I've seen, you know, as the sun is coming up behind it, I've been there at the end of the day as the sun is setting, which is also very magical. Um, you know, midday is pretty spectacular. Um, other places like Machu Picchu, which is another favorite place, getting up just as the sun is setting, coming over the mountains is pretty spectacular. Um, but those are experiences that, that those are both pretty complex sites that, you know, you're kind of jealous for those people that that's their research and they can spend mm -hmm. that amount of time and just being able to, as I did with the home and studio, just notice those tiny details that you're not going to notice. Um, and so kind of getting back to the home and studio. So what's happened is they took out original right changes to the building. He, the last changes he made were just a few years before he died in the 1950s for a later owner. And I don't know if they would do the same thing today. This decision was made in the mid 70s, right after the home and studio was purchased from a private owner. And it had been six or seven separate apartments. And so particularly the studio had been kind of remodeled beginning with with Frank Lloyd Wright and turning it into residential space for his family. It was later broken into other smaller units. I met somebody who lived in the second floor of the home in the seventies. There was a lot of shag carpet. Hmm. Uh, it was kind of uh, almost a commune. You know, there weren't locks between doors. They shared a, a kitchen area that was in the master bedroom and hmm. the playroom was kind of a, a public space place to eat and just hang out. And so there's a lot of changes that had to be made, but the fact that Wright used it as an architectural laboratory, he was continually exploring and making changes to the building, beginning from almost day one, where he changed the windows on the front facade within a year after he built the home. And the fact that what's, what's lost are, is that whole story of how the building evolved. And some of those changes were very functional, but a lot of them were aesthetics and he was exploring his ideas. He laid, uh, I'm sorry, a magnesite floor, uh, which is a type of concrete that has wood chips in it. And it's supposed to be softer on the feet. While well, I used to run programs in that space, I don't think it's any softer than concrete, but you can tint it. And I think he liked it that you get it this kind of lovely leathery color to it. And then he uses it in buildings like Unity Temple and the Larkin Administration Building in Buffalo and in some houses. Mm. So he often would try things out on his own property before using them in other uh, of his clients. And of course, that's all, all that evolution is gone. And so you have to essentially read my book to get that, yeah. that aspect of the, the story. Have you considered how one might go about displaying that evolution because it seems like it would be logical to <laughs> someone ignorant to this process that you would just pick one time and maybe they were you know were kind of romanticizing and saying those those changes seem somewhat commercial you know let's go back to the sort of art artist's vision at the beginning 
it, it's really interesting to imagine how you might display that evolution. Would you pick one time frame or would you sort of play around with trying to show, you know, multiple evolutions at once? Again, I don't know how you would do that. Yeah, I don't think there's any great solution. And in the 70s, there was a scholars conference. They had some of the children, rights children were back. And there was a big debate uh, either, you know, to keep different rooms at different time periods mm -hmm. or to do it the one date or kind of to leave things. And when, when they decided to bring it back to 1909, Wright's oldest son, Lloyd, was livid that they were going to take off this huge canopy that was over the entrance to the studio because he envisioned that as the predecessor of the cantilevers of Falling Water the spectacular house in Pennsylvania that Wright designed over the waterfall in the 1930s. So essentially, you know, a few decades later, well, just a block away from the home and studio, he designed the Mrs. Thomas Gale house that has kind of a cantilevered uh, balcony. And mm -hmm. so he thought that should stay. Uh, the one thing that did stay was the the, the space over the garage in, in the garage edition, which is today the gift shop. So there was a little bit of, of leeway, but I think the way to really be able to understand, I mean, you can read my book, but it's, it's, there's images, but it's, it's words, but to make it more experiential is to use augmented reality and take the historic photographs and be able to overlay those onto the space and to be able to begin to see kind of the layers of time on the building. Um, I was recently uh, traveling in Southeast Asia and a number of the sites in the you know, capital, old capitals of Siam, Sukhothai, and Iridia had uh, information signs and then had QR codes that you could then take your, your phone and then get images of what the buildings probably look like. Um, there's no photographs of, of those buildings, but there's scholars that have studied those and have produced drawings of what they think the buildings originally looked like, which are today just ruins. So I think there's technology that can be used to help bring that story more to life for um, people that are going through the building or having that also online. So people interested in having a better understanding of the building can begin to see the evolution of the spaces. Yeah, that's fascinating. And the augmented reality idea is really, really interesting. This might be a silly question to ask um, close to 50 minutes in, but I never, this is the most amount of time I've thought about someone being an architectural historian. I think I, I was reading in your notes that you you don't say that you're an architect, right? But I would imagine you'd have to know so much about architecture to be an architectural historian. Did you have an initial interest in architecture or did you stumble into that interest through being a historian? I always had an interest in architecture. I think a lot of people do as kids, you know. Sure. Um, I didn't have Legos as a kid. Mm. Was, I was older that I, I got my first Lego set, but I had friends that had Legos and we had other building blocks. But my my father at one point had wanted to be an architect and he designed the house that I grew up in. Mm. And he had his, his drafting set that I used to take and, and design these amazing houses with water features that went through them as a kid. Mm. And I, I remember being in college, I went to McAllister college and which does not have an architecture program. 
And my parents kept on saying, what do you want? What are you going to major in? You know, kind of what are you going to do with your life? And I have such broad interests, but architecture seemed to fit. I spent a summer, Harvard has a summer program. I spent a summer there. And by the time I graduated, I had a degree in geography that strongly influences how I teach today. And particularly the urban geography course I had from David Lanegren had a major impact where in that class we had to go to about every neighborhood in St. Paul and answer questions. You know, whose names do you see in the businesses here? Uh, why is Frogtown called Frogtown? You know, what is and it really opened my eyes to really question about um, built environments and having that as a, a background. And then I have a degree in studio art as well. And I took my calculus, I took my physics. So by the time I graduated, I had pretty much decided I was gonna go into architecture. And then I was hired by a design build firm in Minneapolis. And at that point you could still apprentice and sit for your license. And I thought, oh, I can go back to school for three and a half more years and then have to intern for a couple more and then sit for my license, or I could intern for seven, get paid, get real experience. And I was very interested in construction as well, having that, that knowledge, because I, I'd seen architects design. And in fact, the firm that I worked for, the architects would design, and th there was one brother that ran the, the firm, and his, other, his brother ran the construction crew. And I had friends on the construction crew, so I knew they would then build things how they should be built. Yeah. Um, so there was a little bit of a, a disconnect between these two arms of the company. Uh, and then after um, about a year and a half or so, I ended up going off to Europe and backpacking with a friend. And I had taken all the art history classes, and it was great being able to actually see the works that I had studied in class. And I came back and decided that it was really architectural history is what I wanted to do. So I had an uh the start of an architectural um, background, uh, construction knowledge, and which has been incredibly helpful. And then went on to get my master's in architectural history. And at that point, I was very interested in preservation. And I expected that I would come out and then be involved in the restoration of buildings. So really merging those, those two areas more closely. And then I had spent an interim, a January term when I was uh, undergraduate in Oak Park, actually in Chicago. I spent half the time with a, a friend I met at Harvard on the south side of the city and half the time with a friend who actually lived right next door to Frank Lloyd Wright's Unity Temple in Oak Park. Hmm. And I remember taking the L in and really seeing the rings of development and the projects and the parts of the city, things I had studied in my urban geography classes that you don't really see in the Twin Cities, but they were so clear in Chicago. And I remember thinking I would really like to live and work in Oak Park. It was the first time I really felt like home to me. And I'm very much still, even though I haven't lived in the Midwest for you know 30 years, it's still most of my research is in Chicago. It still feels like home when I come back. And when I finished my degree at University of Virginia, um, I ended up finding out about the job at the home and studio. And I knew that was that was my job. And mm. the pieces just fell into place. And it was an amazing job. Um, by the end of four years, I was teaching at a local college. I was the president of the Chicago Architectural Society of Architectural Historians. 
I was doing some other writing and I realized that most of my professional uh, growth was outside of my actual job. And I knew it was time for me to go and, and work on a PhD. And so I went from Chicago down to Austin, Texas, uh, in part to get out of the cold. Sure. <laughs> Nobody blames you for that. I'm, I'm aware of your time. So um, maybe just as a signing off question, are, are you writing anything right now? I, I know you mentioned it took you 30 years to to write and research that. So I don't want to rush you, but are you working on anything currently? Um, I had another book that I, I finished um, hmm. before the uh, Oak Park Studio book. So that was one of the reasons it took me so long is that I ended up getting involved in the 1933-34 Chicago World's Fair. We talked about, and I got into that project through Frank Lloyd Wright's conceptual designs uh, for the fair. He designed a skyscraper, a massive tent structure, hmm. and thought about putting the fair on barges out on Lake Michigan. So none, none of these are very practical. But he was specifically kept off the architectural commission for that fair because he didn't play well with others. Okay. And I think one of the quotes is, we knew we'd have a fight instead of a fair. It's one of the commissioners telling Wright why he wasn't um, chosen. And I got very involved in the design process for that event. And that led to my dissertation on the 33 Fair and then uh, publication. And then I also teach a course on World, World's Fairs and got involved in looking at what happens to the sites of World's Fairs after the events close. And I did work with one of my students in Vermont, she got summer research fellowship money. So we've been around Europe and, and looked at a number of sites. And then about eight years ago, I was approached by Minnesota's former Secretary of State, Mark Ritchie, who has been spearheading the efforts to try to bring a World's Fair back to the United States, to the Twin Cities in uh, 2027. Mm -hmm. And the bid is coming up uh, real soon in June. So it's an exciting time. And I was able to get funding to bring students up to meet with Mark and others involved in the design process. And then my students did work on one, one class, they worked on the gateway experience. So they looked historically, how do people symbolically as well as physically kind of enter World's Fairs and then provided ideas that Minnesota could use. And then their Minnesota's theme is on health and well-being. So the second class I taught with a colleague who focuses on, on health and well-being and architecture. And we focused on the theme of the fair. And then the students get to go back up and present their work. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I was approached by a colleague at St. Andrews, uh, James Fertona, who was interested in, in creating a panel at the American uh, Historical Association meeting on fairs in the 30s. And he also approached another of colleagues that one was actually on my dissertation committee at Texas, another is a colleague um, in Australia. And my colleague in Australia, my colleague in Scotland, and I got together. You know, the conference was postponed a year. And so um, Jim said, well, let's just get together via Zoom and kind of get to know each other. And in that meeting, I had brought up that there really hadn't been a symposium on World's Fairs since 2008 when there were two. One was at the Smithsonian, which I had presented at. And it was really time for that. And my colleague in Australia um, said, oh, let's start an organization. And hmm. so that was the birth of the 
this organization, this global organization for the study of international expositions, IC for short. And uh, so far, we've held two major online symposiums. We have a speaker series. We're working on some publications. Uh, we've had people from kind of all over the world participate. So it's been really exciting. So that long answer, but that's been taking up much of my time in the last um, couple of years. And I'm hoping that we'll get a little bit stronger foundation under us that uh, I can begin to branch off and, and do some other publication projects. Any, can you suggest what you, what you might be interested in working on or you wanna keep that private until? Well, I think the the first publication project is actually gonna come out of our second symposium. Mm. And that was focused on best design practices at World's Fairs. And what happens is these are kind of seen as one-off events. And except for a number of countries like Germany that tend to use the same design team for one fair after the other, there's a lot of lessons that are lost. And so mm. we had both scholars talking about what lessons can you learn from past fairs? I presented on the 33 fair and there were a lot of great lessons that uh, were presented and mm. that are still relevant today. And then we had uh, some of the best designers of pavilions from the most recent fair, which was in Dubai, uh, it was Expo 2020, even though it wasn't held until 2021, uh, 2022. So it closed about a year ago. And then we had uh, representatives from some of the bids for future fairs. Uh, so the next World's Fair is gonna be in Osaka in 2025. And then the bid is coming up both for 2027 and 2030. So we had Minnesota and Spain uh, presenting. And 2030, uh, we've got, we even had uh, the Ukraine, who's still in the, the hunt for 2030, which is, is pretty exciting considering what's been going on in their country. Hmm. Russia was also in the mix, and they, they dropped out, uh, fortunately, right after the invasion. Uh, but uh, we've got a group of people we're starting to put together in thinking about almost a handbook type publication Interesting. where we'll have short essays to begin to have future planners beginning to think hmm. through some of the core kind of design issues that you have when you're building temporary buildings and bringing hundreds of thousands of people together for these events. Yeah, something I've never considered a how-to guide. And I could imagine your lesson really, or your point really resonates that lessons would be easily lost, you know, which is with how much time there is between those. That's fascinating. Well, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. We're a bit over. I'm going to thank you for, for your time. Of course. Um, I'm going to stop the recording. And if you don't mind just hanging out afterwards. Sure. Well, thank you. This has been my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Shrink. <laughs>